there. Welcome to another edition of the Dishcast. This week, we thought we'd get someone on who would present a very contrary view to my own on immigration, at least thinking through some of the issues from first principles. And the man we've asked to come on is Brian Kaplan, who is a professor of economics at George Mason University, and who is the author of Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration, a New York Times bestseller. And uh, Brian is joining me today. Hi, Brian. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Great to be here, Andrew. I feel like I, I know you a little bit because I've been watching all these these videos of you um, <laughs> and the various conversations. So tell me, you you let me just ask you something straight up out of the title of your your book, the science of immigration. Well, how, how, what does that mean? Well, there's a lot of research in economics, sociology, political science on exactly what immigration does. Uh, it's of course called social science. Originally, I think the title was social science, but then I said, eh. You don't need to go and put that uh, additional adjective in the subtitle. It's just going to bore people and turn people off. Uh, of course, if you have grave doubts about how scientific social science is, then this will seem pretentious. On the other hand, since I am a professional social scientist, I've got to at least have some confidence that we're getting somewhere with this stuff. So, and yeah, I, I do, and I do try to curate it so that I'm giving you the good stuff. I always had that problem: uh, political science, social science. I mean, I started it all too. Um, I just always found the word science to be problematic, mainly because you just can't do a control group experiment on any of these things. It's not really science. You can't actually, and because you have individuals involved who have autonomous brains, can do whatever they want. Well, you can't, can't, can't do a control group in astronomy. That's science, isn't it? Astronomy, yes. Yeah, but there's, there's, no, there's, 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 no, there's no controls in astronomy. Just got to look, look at the skies. Maybe that's, figure maybe it out. that's true. Yeah. yeah, but do, do they? Are they? Are they? Are they inferring hypotheses and proving oh, yeah. them in space? Well, proving is all is, is a very strong observation, word, right? <laughs> observation, right? Yeah. Um. So tell me what your science of immigration tells you. Right. So first of all, what happens uh, economically when a migrant moves from one country to another? Uh, the Basic fact is that when you move from one country to another, normally there's a very large increase in your productivity. So this is very clear for something like agriculture, where we can easily measure how much food you're growing. So if you take a Mexican farmer from Mexico and move him to a farm in the U.S., then it's very easy for him to grow five times as much food as he was doing before. Why? This, ah, well, it's a great question. So some of it's just why, why can't they do yeah. it there? Is there something yeah. the matter with their own countries that they can't actually uh, create a, a decent standard of living? Well, at least, at least you can say that they haven't. Uh, so, I mean, in terms of, of what's going on, that's a great question. But you know, some of it's technology, some of it's better management. Um, you know, you know, so on simpler cultural theories, you would say, look, the people there, they're not acculturated to work in a modern business. And that's what you can see is wrong because you really can go and move Mexican farm workers to U.S. agribusiness and it doesn't take that long to get them doing well. Uh, if, if there's this deeper question of why isn't the whole country doing better, that's, of course, one of the toughest questions in all of social science. Why is it that some countries have worked out well and why is it that some countries have worked out so poorly? See, a lot of what immigration does is just say, look, that's too hard to figure out. But what we do know how to do is to move people from one place to another and just solve the problem before, without really knowing exactly what went wrong. That doesn't solve the problem at all. It just moves it. 
isn't the isn't the moving of people not a solution in any way? I mean, it's not going to leave Honduras or El Salvador in a better place when their most enterprising citizens leave. It's going to make it worse, surely. Well, uh, no, not surely. I guess that's one of the big things in social science is avoiding words like surely. Uh, so what I would say is, first of all, in terms of what it does for Hondurans or Salvadorans, immigration obviously helps the ones that move. In terms of what happens to those who stay behind, in a very standard view from research is that they get so much money back in remittances that it's to that it's more than worth it for them economically. You know, in the same way that you know, that you can go and commute from the, your job in the suburbs into the city, or people did before COVID, you work in the city, you make a lot more money than you could have back uh, next to your house, and then you go back and you spend it on your family, and you give them a better better standard of living than you could have had if you stay there. That's a lot of what's going on with immigration: is people are going away from places where their labor doesn't accomplish very much. And uh, have you seen any of these countries having had such a sort of uh, out-migration of people doing better afterwards? Well, I'd say actually it's the standard thing. Uh, you know, there's always compared to what? Uh, compared to what? Uh, probably the best thing, the closest to controlled experiment is Puerto Rico. Uh, so in 1902, there's a Supreme Court decision that created open borders between Puerto Rico and the US. And if you just go to Puerto Rico, you say, well, what's so great? It's poor the Mississippi. On the other hand, it's also basically the richest island in the Caribbean. Uh, and that's for the people that stayed behind. So part of that is, of course, the Puerto Rican send remittances. Part of that is that there's additional benefits, like people come and work in Puerto work in the U.S. for a while. They go home to Puerto Rico and they retire, or they pick up business skills. So I mean, the idea that open borders with the U.S. has messed up things for the people stayed behind in Puerto Rico is pretty crazy because well, Puerto Rico is a, a, a very specific example. It's not really yeah. it, it, it's it's a it's a it's a territory of the United States. But um, if one one uh, what. What do you think would happen if, for example, we had a completely open border as they do in Europe, say, in the, in the Schengen area, mm -hmm. in North America? Let's see. So, like, so, uh, open so you borders, get rid of the border yeah. between yeah. Mexico and the U.S., and you get rid of the border between Canada and the U.S. Yeah. So there's not going to be that many Canadians who will come here. I wouldn't be surprised if 5% of the population moved. I don't think too many Americans want to go to Canada. Maybe one percent of Americans go to Canada. The big change is obviously going to be for Latin America, where I think that over the course of a couple of decades, it wouldn't be at all surprising if a third of the population came here. Which, again, if that worries you, then that's terrifying. On the other hand, if you're like me and you say, "Wow, this is fantastic! We're going and moving people from places where their labor produces very little to places where it produces a lot, which enriches humanity." Well, you say enrich. You you're talking entirely in economic terms in regarding these individuals as sort of units of production that can be moved anywhere like a widget around the world. Surely you understand it's a little bit more complicated than that. Well, I'd like to start with a simple story. I mean, obviously, there's a big difference between a human and a widget, which is the widget doesn't decide if it wants to move. The human being do does decide whether or not it wants to move. So the people that move are going to be the ones that actually want to. It's not like we're just picking people at random and saying, hey, you, you've got to move to the United States now. Um, but, uh, but still, just starting with this enormous gain in, uh, in, in human production. And again, so like one of the main things that we get out of social science is a tool called cost-benefit analysis, where we try to actually weigh different changes and sum them up. And one of the main points of my book is that these economic gains are so astronomical that you could have dozens of other complaints, and yet still it's a good idea because the other complaints just don't add up to trillions of dollars worth of of problems per year, whereas these economic gains are just so enormous. 
Although, you know, it's also worth pointing out, I think you know this, Andrew, that you, know, you can say it's only money, but only money is the difference of between life and death for a lot of people, especially from a poor country. It's also the difference between whether you can have a more satisfying life. If you if you have a very low earnings, then you're not going to be able to do a job that you enjoy because you've got to focus on just what pays the most. Whereas giving people uh, higher paid options also means they can say, I don't really want the highest paid option. I want something that has a better work-life balance. So you're doing all of these things simultaneously. And there is absolutely no cost to anybody living in the United States whatsoever. Um, that's exactly the kind of thing I would never say, Andrew. So kind of the yes. stuff that you, yes. you, you uh, one, so, the impression one yes. gets. Mm, I don't think so. Meaning, like if we were to talk about, say, you know, me mechanization of agriculture, there's no cost to people of that. No, there's a whole bunch of people's lives ruined by the mechanization of agriculture. I will say it was a fantastic overall improvement, and hardly anyone today is worse off because of it. But even so, you know, for any change, there's always going to be some loser and. The sensible thing is not to go and dwell on that, but to say, well, what's the what's the overall here? And maybe, like, is there something that we can do to make it not so bad for the losers? And, you know, if you can do that at low cost, great. And otherwise, say, well, that's the price of progress. And hopefully the hundred other kinds of progress that are happening will balance it out. But, um, you know, there's no guarantee of that. Absolutely. I'm... So you, you basically your argument is that production would increase mm -hmm. because numbers of people in systems that tend to be more productive mm -hmm. will arrive. Yeah, exactly. And you said it very well, Andrew, because I'm not just making the obvious argument that raising the population of the US makes our GDP bigger and the GDP of the sending country smaller. I'm saying the much more interesting thing, which is that the combined GDP of the receiving the sending country goes up because you're moving people from places where they accomplish very little to places where they can accomplish a lot. You know, if you were to move everyone in Haiti to the US, Haiti would have a GDP of zero. But the increase in U.S. GDP would far exceed the current GDP of Haiti because those Haitians would be integrated into a well-functioning modern technological economy. Uh, well, you say that. <laughs> how many Haitians are there? Do you know? I mean, how many millions how many are there in Haiti? If I remember correctly, it's 9 million. Okay, 9 million Haitians arrive. Um, what do they do? I mean, this is the thing that, that you talked earlier about automation mm -hmm. of agriculture. And we do have a, a very different economy than we had 50 years ago, mm -hmm. 100 years ago, 150 years ago, in which the rewards that go to people who have very few skills, but the kind of skills that immigrants had coming into America for most of the time that America was open to such people, including the last big waves of immigration. Now, low-skilled labor is, is, is much less in demand. It's paid less. That, uh, that automation has done a huge amount to expedite the efficiency of what we produce. And that in fact, we need fewer and fewer people to do what we want to be done. Uh, isn't bringing in large numbers of low-skilled workers when there are not actually that many jobs for those kind of workers going to lead to a large pool of underemployed uh, human beings in the United States? Right. So I guess I just have to challenge the premise, Andrew. It's true that there's been some automation, but in terms of uh, work for low-skilled workers, there is an endless supply. Uh, the first thing to remember is that about 80% of the economy, about 80% of the modern economy is services where there's really been very little automation. 
uh, which is also, by the way, the answer to why can't we just have international trade in goods and not in labor, which is that most of the economy is services where if a person can't cook your meals for you nearby, then they really can't do it at all. Uh, in terms of what has happened to wages for low-skilled workers, there was a period of some fallen stagnation. And then actually, over the last 15 years or so, it's been more of the middle income has had uh, has, has done the worst, or mi middle school. Low-skilled workers have actually had a bit of a rebound during this time. A tiny bit in the last few years because immigration was tightened. Uh, not Again, it's not just the last few years. It's actually about during the last 20 years there's been a rebound for low-skilled workers. But you, and, you, yes, would, yes. you would acknowledge that the low-skilled workers are not going up very fast in America, that, that mobility isn't increasing very fast for those people, um, that in fact there is a great deal of grinding poverty going on by people who are obviously uh, exploited by many people. But also, I'm just thinking, how does someone with no education from Haiti come to the United States and suddenly be this easily functioning, fully integrated into this modern economy. I mean, surely you don't believe that. So this, the fully word is too strong. Sufficiently is what I would say. Right. So if you look, if you, if you go to Miami, you can see Haitians working in all kinds of jobs there. Employers are not required to go and hire them. What are they doing? They're saying, look, I see a person here who has a bunch of strengths, some weaknesses, and I can work with that. So they can go and work in a restaurant, or they can shine shoes, or they can be an Uber driver. Uh, these are all jobs that are very standardly done by low-skilled immigrants. Uh, when you're mentioning mobility, here's the striking thing is that actually immigrants, uh, low-skilled immigrants, there's much higher upper mobility for their kids than there is for the native-born, which you might say, well, the kids of immigrants are taking the opportunities that would otherwise have gone to the kids of low-skilled Americans. I think it has a lot more to do with people that are coming from other countries, they really missed a lot of their opportunities in life that when they move here, they're, they're way behind, but their kids are not. And so you know, a lot of what we see is that the actual, uh, the, the, uh, the pre-existing talent of immigrants is a lot greater than what their performance in the economy shows, especially when they show up uh, when they're older. Their kids, on the other hand, they inherit the talent of the parents, but without the disadvantages. Uh, so, you know, it is really very striking that the odds of, say, the a native born child of two high school dropouts getting a college degree very low. But on the other hand, odds for an immigrant child of two foreign born high school dropouts going to college actually several times higher. So it really, it really does give you an idea about how much of this is just a temporary setback rather than something really fundamental. But presumably also, it does matter the scale you're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, there are things like the pace of immigration, which would obviously overwhelm a country if it came in all at once. Uh, there would be no pe places for people to actually live. Mm -hmm. there, there would be a huge, and if you have completely open borders, which is what you're advocating, what is to stop the entire world showing up? Yeah, so that's a fantastic question. Uh, so I'm very happy to admit that if a billion people showed up tomorrow, it would be a, it would be a catastrophe. All right, we wouldn't we they would just starve to death. We wouldn't have things ready for them. Uh, however, in tr terms of actual realistic rates of movement, even with open borders, is this a problem? I would say it is not. Uh, so, uh, I mean, a few things to keep in mind. So, first of all, most obviously, there's always transportation costs. So, you know, like we just don't have the infrastructure to move a billion people or even 100 million people anywhere overnight. Uh, furthermore, of course, while people are very interested in moving, they're not, they don't want to go and pack it tomorrow. They want to wait for the, to, to get things in order and hopefully line up a job and that kind of thing, talk to relatives and see whether they've got a place to stay. Uh, but the bigger, the bigger issue is how exactly do patterns of migration happen when you don't have regulation? And there's a lot of research on what's called diaspora dynamics, 
And it comes down to this. When a border is first opened between two countries that have been totally closed, you almost never see a flood unless there's a terrible refugee crisis or people are fleeing for their lives. Instead, what you usually see is just a trickle. A few very brave people who say, I'm going to be the first people to move to this new country. It's scary to be the first person from your country to move someplace. And then once those people move, that creates a little beachhead, which then makes a few more people willing to move, which makes more people willing to move, and makes more people willing to move. So there is the snowballing. And again, I hate to come back to Puerto Rico again, but it's such a nice example. So when the border between the U.S. and Puerto Rico was first opened, only a few thousand people came in the first 10 years, which would make it very easy to say Puerto Ricans just don't want to live in America. It's the wrong climate or whatever. But what we saw is there was a snowballing where then 10 years later, there were about 10,000 people and then, th then 30,000 crashed during the Depression for other reasons. And then, but by now, over half of all people of Puerto Rican descent have moved to the U.S. So it's been over a century. Uh, so I think this is the likely pattern. Now, you know, by the way, when people, well, it's already yeah. happening, isn't it? Um, with Mexico, for example, mm -hmm. that we've we've had large waves of Mexican immigrants coming in, which have mm -hmm. been a sort of in, in a beachhead for the next wave yeah, yeah. of which is another. Uh, okay, so again, like, another like, large compared to what people are used to, not large compared to what I think ought to happen. Uh, again, really? How yeah, many yeah, people would you like to see immigrate to the United yeah. States I, per I, year? Yeah. Let's see. So let me say, like during the next century, I think a billion people would be great. Good God. This country, I mean, look, if you drive across this country, it's virtually empty. And, you know, here's the thing. If you know someone... Uh, like, 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 do you think there are any, any limitations on resources that would... I mean, you, there doesn't seem to be any... Certainly any environmental, ecological aspect of what you're, you're saying. I mean, ah. that would be an incredible burden to place both on the economic infrastructure, the industrial infrastructure, but also the energy and environmental infrastructure that keeps a place from from becoming run uh, you know, run into the ground. Yeah, great, great question, Andrew. Uh, so, uh, I mean, just to get an idea about how I, this is not crazy. And by the way, whenever I sell my ideas, I always I always push very radical views. I don't bother writing books on moderate views. It would bore me, and someone else has already written it. But my goal is always just to have people walk away saying, that guy isn't crazy. Not that he's right, just that he's not crazy. So just on this theme of Brian's not crazy, when the U.S. when the U.S. first started, it had about three million people. Now we have over a hundred times that many. That's two centuries. It is not at all crazy to think about increasing your population size by a factor of ten per century. It happened, and though obviously there were a bunch of growing pains and complaints, it was awesome. It was awesome to grow America from three million to three hundred million people. In terms of environmental let, effects, let me, just, yeah. let me just unpack that a little bit. Because I'm, I'm interested in some of the basic assumptions you have behind all this. It was awesome. Like, w w what was awesome about it? Is size always better? Is bigger always better than smaller? I'm, well, I'm just confused of why yeah. it is inherently awesome. Well, I mean, most basically, I think it's better for a lot of people to enjoy a good life than a small number of people to enjoy a good life. Uh, so, you know, if you'd either have 10, you know, 10 happy people on Earth or a billion happy people on Earth. Uh, let, uh, me, know, let, me, let me come back at you on that. Surely... Uh, people tend to prefer to stay where they grew up, and most people, they're, they're not always itching to leave a place. It's, it's not that, it's a minority people that want to leave their homes and, and start out all the new people like me and probably you, but we're, we're a minority. Um, uh, it depends on how bad the country you're coming from is. So I, th I think it's pretty clearly, like probably most of Syria wants to leave, probably 90% of Haiti would leave and over the course of 10 years. So, so yeah, I mean, like, it's true. I don't think many Canadians want to leave Canada. Although I, I think 5% actually would, would, uh, would take the deal over the, over, over the course of 20 the, years. The point is this, why not, why not make an effort 
to improve the politics and the economics of these societies in order to make them decent places to live. What you're doing, in a way, is providing a safety valve for every failed regime in the world to continue to fail because it will always know that its most uh, ambitious or able citizens will leave. Um, and, in, and so you're creating a disincentive for reform in governments around the world that need to keep and retain their own, uh, their own citizens. What, what would you yeah. say to that objection to this? Yeah, you're full of great questions, Andrew. All right, so I'd say the. <laughs> yeah, I mean, here, here's, 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 here's the really big thing: fixing countries is the hardest thing in the social world. Like, someone says, "Hey, why can't we just go and fix Kyrgyzstan?" It's like, gee, where do we start? And like, how would we do it? And what's going to happen if we try? And it's really hard. And very smart people have been working on this issue for at least a century. And there's a there's some success stories, and there's also things that happen that were good, and the people afterwards like, hmm, why? And then there's other cases where they thought it would work, and it didn't. It's just really complicated to figure out how to fix a country, and even if you did have the right formula, getting people to follow it is like pulling teeth. Whereas just moving people from a dysfunctional country to a functional country is extremely cheap and easy, and it's almost foolproof in terms of how it works for large numbers. So unless unless it yeah. turns the previously functional yes. country unless, into unless a it does yes. primarily that, dysfunctional yes. one, in that, which it's that, it's lose lose around. Yes. That 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 yes. that that is that is that is the worry. But uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yes, okay. So like, you know, like, I mean, I'm happy to talk about cases like that, and there there yeah. are a few examples where I think it really did happen. But I think that it is actually more common for things to go the other way, where when a country is losing their best people, then normally they do two things. One is they build machine guns at the border and say, no one gets out of here alive, which is the old Soviet approach. And the other one is people are saying, saying hmm, could we do something that would make people not want to leave? And right. I think it, it's, it actually tends to be at least a mild push reform. I don't think that it's all that strong. Uh, because usually dysfunctional countries are so dysfunctional that it's hard for them even to admit that they're screwed up and need to change. Uh, but this is one of the things that does at least get, get people noticing is, gee, people really want to leave here. Maybe we could do something a little bit better, possibly. Um, so, so Kamala Harris goes down, as she did this week, um, and tells people, do not come, do not come to Central America, and in which... The well, Central for, America for, for, from Central America or to Central America? From Central America from to Central the United America. States. She's there, but she's she's speaking as if she's from the United States, saying, do not come, do not come. Why do you think she's saying that? Well, I mean, I think it's Why because... Why would she say, yeah, everyone yeah. come now? <laughs> yeah, that's a... Wow, great questions. Okay, so... Um, Contrary to a lot of ridiculous propaganda, the Democrats do not favor open borders. It's not part of their secret agenda. They're not like me. They're not like anyone like me. They're basically normal Americans who, who think that immigrants are a problem. And they feel so, And the reason why they don't have as harsh of a policy is because they feel sorry for them. So I, that's, why, that's why there's such a big difference between the Democrats' policy towards immigrants that are already here, where it's like, well, you're already here. It'd be really mean to send you back. Versus ones that aren't that aren't here yet was like well don't come and then we don't have to put us in the situation. I mean it's, it's no, basically plans, like, like plans long term to vastly increase the detention centers, the, mm -hmm. the reception centers, yeah. the 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 court system, the entire to maximize the influx of of immigration from the south. I mean that is what Biden is aiming for a big increase yeah. in this as well as amnestying everybody who's already come here illegally do you have a 
Do you have a position on that? If people have, or if it's not actually legally open borders, if in fact it's an it's a it's a it's illegal to enter and cross a border which which is supposed to be defended, do do you make that distinction? Would you say that it's fair that those people who have broken the law should be deported for having done that? All right. Well, so I'll say I'm a philosophical scoff law. So I think a lot of laws really are made to be broken. Uh, of course, everyone who drives over the speed limit ultimately has a view like this. Uh, so yeah, so I'm all in favor of amnesty for people who come here, but again, really what I want is for them not to, not to be illegal in the first place. Um, you know, in terms of like why you know, Harris would say these things, distinction without a difference though, uh, because if you, if you get in, mm -hmm. uh, first of all, you'll, you'll never be deported. I mean, I think 2% of the total uh, undocumented population in the United States is deported every year, and that's actually right. now gone down a considerable amount. Hmm. And there's well, no mechanism well, to deport people. Hmm. Although, you well, well, and well, Andrew, if you, if you do basic compounding math, that's actually a lot. Two to three percent of people being deported per year, if you multi multiply that over the course of a decade, you're talking about 20 to 30 percent roughly getting deported. Well, so, if you, if that, you had yeah. stable yes. numbers, if you have numbers going up every year yes, as yes. well, then, then you end up in a basically mm -hmm. holding pattern in which anybody mm -hmm. that gets over the border is here forever no i mean i mean again that, that could give you a stable population it doesn't mean that individuals aren't at risk of getting deported uh, you know so like if there were if a religion had a two to three, two to three percent apostasy rate per year they should be terrified because the religion is going to be is going to disappear unless they get a lot of converts and basically new new illegal immigrants are like the converts that keep the population from going down to zero but i'd say that's actually a quite high rate of deportation I mean, does that include self-removal where people who just go back or is it literally people that are legally deported? It is people who are legally deported. Yeah, so you know, of um, course there's also the, people that go back. Yeah, there's also some people go back voluntarily. So, I mean, I'd say that's a really pretty high number actually when you really think about it as an annual number. Wow. So <laughs> you, 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 the, the process that would take maybe 20, 30 years to get someone, well, at this point, I think it's 10 to 15 years for someone mm -hmm. to get a court, court appointment which even if they get denied their asylum, they can just walk out of there and go home and never be seen again. There's no actual process for arresting them or deporting them on the spot. So you have your odds entering illegally in the United States of staying here for an uh, indefinite period of time are pretty high, which is why so many people do it. Mm -hmm. um, and especially now, since, since the Biden administration, apart from Kamala's attempt to sort of do damage control, basically did send a message to most people south of the border to say, this is your opportunity to come in. We have a new president. We have a new attitude. We have, we have a, a, a political party that really doesn't want to criminalize border crossings, as we saw in the, in the primaries. Um, right, but also don't come. <laughs> so what? But, but also, also don't come. Well, I know also that's why come. they're in this completely absurd position. And, and mm -hmm. I think most people begin to realize that. Um, yeah, I mean, it is an absurd, well, I mean, it is an absurd position because I think for most Democrats, immigration is basically a humanitarian issue. And I'll say I care about that, but also the point of letting a person use their talents to contribute to the betterment of mankind is um, you know, much more my focus and just realizing all the talent that's getting wasted in poor countries and just how much they could accomplish if you would just go and, and stamp, their, stamp their visa and say, you can go and work here. Uh, so for me, it's you know, like it's very much a win-win thing, and I think even for, when they have yeah, no yes. skills, no education, yeah, so they I, don't I say, even speak like, the like, language. Yes, well, of course, uh, if it's literally no skills, then there's no win-win. But what I'd say is actually, people that we think of as low-skilled have very useful skills. 
Let me this way. So if like the janitor at your business suddenly dies, do is the normal reaction or is the sensible reaction? Good. There's one less burden on society around. Uh, not nice to say it, but that's the reality. And I say no. Like janitors are very useful. So. They do something very. They do something very helpful. They and then by doing their job, they let other more skilled workers focus on what they're doing. Anytime, any, 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 any skilled worker during COVID who had to start doing a lot of menial stuff for themselves because they couldn't get, get help anymore realizes that lower skilled workers are very useful and to say skilled immigrants aren't useful. Again, it's just like, it's no, just weird mean, to me. Like, what do you mean they're not useful? Like, no, uh, you know, immigrants that. took of care course. of my kids. That was really useful. Of course. And I'm that you, I think misunderstanding what I was trying to say about that. It's simply that we do know that in the economy we have that low skills are really not rewarded that well. And by having large, large, more numbers of people who don't have those skills, you're also going to drive the prices, the, the costs, the, the, the wages of, of those people even further down. And the worry is that you're creating essentially a two-tiered society, one of essentially a servant uh, immigrant class at very low uh, wages and, and, and pretty exploitable, uh, and then a, and a very wealthy upper middle class that can also move to areas where there are no problems with immigrants, where there's no racial tensions, where there's, there's, no, there's no social disruption because of immigration, um, and protect themselves from the actual firsthand impact of it, as well as, of course, not be threatened because their jobs are not going to be threatened by the immigrants. In fact, the latest wave of immigrants are the ones who are really at under under threat from the the new wave of immigrants, which they're the ones particularly competing with these people. So you could have a wave after wave of of rush, rushing to the bottom in terms of exploitation of people with few skills for for low work, with all the social problems that emerge from creating essentially an unskilled underclass of people especially at the kind of levels that you're talking about. They wouldn't even have to, in many cases, even talk to people, say, in English, because there are so many of them speaking Spanish or speaking some other language. They don't even have to. Um, and I wanted to use that to get to a deeper question, which is that you never talk about culture. Mm -hmm. You never talk about what might hold a country together, that, that it's not just GDP or GDP per capita or, or productivity, that there's something else that makes a nation a nation that open borders would effectively dilute to, to a degree that is that, that that is very hard for people to 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 manage what do you say to that because that well, has been the effect in europe particularly over the last uh, few decades so a lot going on there I actually, I do have, I do have a whole chapter in culture, so I do talk it about it a lot. But I usually, I wait for the interviewer to raise it, and then we can talk about it. Well, there you uh, go. Yes, yes, but I've raised so, it. So yes, yeah, right, very well. So here's what, here's what I say about culture. Uh, the, of course, a lot of the reason immigrants want to come here is because they like the effects of the culture, right? So they like the fact that st living standards are higher here. That's why people come. Which again is why when people start talking about the exploitation of immigrants, I'll say, well, they're being exploited here. It's a lot better than where they're coming from. That's why they came in the first place. But also very often people are coming because they like the culture for its non-economic effects. They want to be in a place that is more tolerant, where trust is higher, where they just have more, more options, more, more opportunities, where there's more cultural but diversity. Trust, trust we absolutely yes. know. Social trust 
disappears and collapses quite quickly under the weight of, of mass immigration. Uh, no, diversity, it's, it's, in fact, diversity of race and of culture is actually a, a pretty strong indicator of lower trust. In, uh, so, in so, so not only do we not know that, the main researcher who is famous for popularizing that in his only quantitative paper, he sh uh, his, his measured effect of diversity on trust is way down at like the 20th most important variable. Uh, so this is this is Robert, Robert Putnam. Yeah, yes, I'm talking about Robert Putnam. So if you go and actually, so most of his papers, you know, there's very he doesn't really raise different stories, but the one where he does, where he says, was a lot of things that matter for trust. This diversity variable that he puts in actually has a measurable but very tiny effect. So, and yet out of out of that work has come the story of diversity and immigration is terrible for trust. Where I would say the most you could say is it's very mildly bad for trust. Uh, which again is what, you know, what comes back to is just the innumeracy of so much discussion of this where people don't want to put numbers on the complaints. And it's a lot more about like who has the best poem. And I'll say, look, let's put a price tag on the poems and then add the poems up and see how and see what it all comes out to here. Uh, so now, so like, you know, so now what is true is that uh, people who come from poor countries, they norm, you know, poor countries generally do have low trust. Uh, now, one thing we can see is that foreign-born people in the U.S. generally have considerably higher trust than the typical person from their country. Uh, probably a lot of that is just when you move to a better country where people are more trustworthy, your views on trust change. It's important to remember, trust and trustworthiness are two sides of the same coin. If someone is in a jail and they have high trust, that's not good for them, nor is it reasonable. I said, look, it's a re they also, it's the problem is trustworthiness more fundamentally. And when you move to a place where trustworthiness is high, this does actually change people's minds to a notable extent. Although the big question is, what about intergenerational trust? So what I, well, you know, what I went up doing, there's other, other papers on this, is show that there's actually very high trust assimilation where the children of immigrants tend to have, end up having trust that is very similar to the American norm, actually. And again, it's, it's just the way, like the, the, there is actually a tendency to really underrate American culture in particular and Western culture in general. So sometimes people say you don't appreciate Western culture, Brian. said, no, no, I think it's great. And I think it's actually much more powerful than you realize. I think that this is a winning culture. It's a culture that is winning very well all over the world right now where people get a glimpse of it and say, hey, I want a piece of that. I don't just want to go and watch American movies. I want to try living an American lifestyle. So like, like for example, you know, if you go to Malaysia, you'll see in Kuala Lumpur, about 20% of the young women seem very westernized there. It's a Muslim country. And you're like, huh. And they're doing it. And like, what's going on? Probably their parents aren't too happy to see Malaysian Britney Spears walking around. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, this is the influence of American culture that is there when they don't totally crush it. And a yes, lot of what immigration also, does is let people escape from that and, and, and actually become part of the culture that they know exists, but it's hard to fully partake. And thereby remove from that population in that country the very people that might be able to best reform it along Western lines to build trust, to understand those connections. Well, that's, that's, a, very, that's a very, very negative way of putting it. There's also, hey, my cousin moved to America. Why can't I dress like her, Dad? Well, they can already see <laughs> people dressing like that on yeah. YouTube any, yeah. any moment of the day, the possibility. Right. Well, I mean, you know, like uh, a, a big of, thing about culture, you know, like there's, there's the culture on TV and there's the culture that you see every day and both matter, right? But I mean, you know, like, like just having relatives that are actually have, have left the country and are partaking in, in Western culture. You know, what I say is I think a lot of people just underestimate how crushingly Western culture is likely to win in even a semi-fair fight. Uh, so that I say, like, there are people in many of the most repressive countries on earth who already are in their minds trying to live here. 
And yeah, like they're some of the most likely ones to come, but it also means that there's other people that are more that are that are not quite white there yet. I'll still say, gee, my, my cousins, my relatives are moving there. They write back and say it's great. They're texting me back pictures of being in an American mall and not having to wear burqas. Yeah, why can't we do that here? Again, I'm not saying it's a panacea and that Saudi Arabia will change overnight, but you know, again, if, if I were a Saudi woman, I would definitely be trying to get the hell out of there. And if I and if I were one that were not ready to get the hell out, just to go and say I've got some sisters or cousins who have moved, and they say it's actually better better there. Maybe I should move, or maybe I should stay here and say, "Hey, like my sister's living this life. If you don't want me to leave, maybe you better treat me better." Or they could stay and try and fight for their their brothers and sisters and and peers in those countries. I think of Iran, for example, where so much of the urban and younger generations are so pro-Western. But mm -hmm. being pro-West doesn't mean they want to leave Iran and leave their entire country and their homeland and their culture and their language and their, and their civilization in order to just uproot because of economic interest to the United States. Well, I mean, I mean it's, not, again, it's not just economics. It's also getting out from under the thumb of the mullahs and saying, look, my, like, the odds that this country changing are pretty slim, but my ability well, like, to fix my own life slimmer good. by them leaving, right, than, than by them staying. So I would say I just don't know. So, you know, on the one hand, it's true that you're moving out the people that are possible leaders. On the other hand, you're also going and making leadership say, gee, we're losing talent here. We don't really want to lose all of our talent. Uh, so, like, you know, even East Germany. So I was talking to a historian of East Germany. Uh, but it was, it was pretty interesting. He was saying, like, the East German government, like, okay, we're not going to stop being communists. We're not going to stop jailing people who are active dissidents. But we want to do some other things that will at least reduce the resentment of people, so they're let they're they are trying less hard to go and leave. So again, like that is a like a reaction, even of some very repressive regimes. I don't know the Saudis are going to go and say let's be better reform, or else all women are going to flee the country. Uh, but uh, but still, why, in your view, then hasn't China, for example, opened its doors to anybody that wants to go there? So why 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 is it main, mainland China does it done it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, I mean, for mainland China, the story is pretty easy, which is like, the for the priority of the government is not prosperity, it's not having a decent life, it's retaining power, and so letting in people from other countries with other ideas is dangerous for them. I mean, I would say, you know, you know Mao Zedong, he had a great formula for maintaining power, and his successors are like decided to take a big risk. And but you know, and yeah, nevertheless, they 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 said, well, like let's take some risk. Let's not be, do anything really crazy because otherwise, it may be us that that, that wind, winds up getting thrown out of power. Now, so what's going on in Japan? That's the that that that's that's really a better case where I, I don't I don't think they're worried about being overthrown or anything like that. You know, I'd say that the like like so my, my first book, the myth of the rational voter, uh, like like is on you know, public opinion and policy. And, you know, like I have a very general story there, which is that public opinion, contrary to what you've heard, is the main driver of policy. Politicians want to adopt popular policies. They don't always do it. But nevertheless, this is our first past explanation for why any politician does anything. It's just that it's popular. Now, why would something bad be popular? Uh, well, I've got a whole book saying it happens all the time. And uh, <laughs> uh, as to why that is, I would just say that very often, what is good sounds bad, and what is bad sounds good. Uh, well, hold on as, a as, as, as hold to on what, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 something more. I'm only trying to get. I'm trying to get at whether you understand why, for example, people prefer. Many many people prefer. Not everybody. I think you and I are exceptions to this because intellectuals and writers and thinkers tend to be exceptions to the rule. But most people prefer. 
to belong to a culture that gives them meaning, that connects them to the past and potentially to the future, that maybe is even connected to the land and the landscape in which they grew up, with the language that they speak. And that forms a kind of community that gives their lives really profound meaning, as much meaning, one would say, as any increase in salary, any increase in money. In fact, some people are clearly preferring one to the other because they, they gain something. So, for example, people in England who decided the, the, the small, tiny majority actually voted to leave the EU, which meant to end open borders with the rest of Europe. Uh, why do you think they did that? What do you think they were responding to? Yeah, so I say voting isn't really doing something it's saying. So I say actions speak louder than words. So to really say that uh, about how much people care about the stuff, you need to look at whether they're willing to pay higher rents or go and take a lower paid job. And yes, there is some moderate willingness to do that, but that's all that it is. So if you're just going to measure how much will people pay to live in an immigrant-free neighborhood compared to one that has 20% immigrants, will they pay 2% premium, 5% premium? For most people, that's the absolute most they're willing to actually shell out. And I say that captures what they really care about. Then why would they vote for something that is that seems very, very, very out of whack with that? And I say that when you vote, that's where you uh, you become a poet. That's where you stop going and saying how much you really care about it, and instead say what sounds good, right? And this is again, this is very like a very general principle that I apply in all of my work. Actions speak louder than words, but unfortunately, politics is based on words, and so. Politician can come to office advocating something that sounds with a great poem that actually is a disastrous idea. Why did people vote for Chavez in Venezuela? Right? Well, because he, he was the better poet. He had poetry that said he was going to make Venezuela great. So there's great. no rational reason at all for people to want, for example, for Brexit. No, no reason at all. The, the, the ability for a country to control its own borders, to say, uh, this side of the border, you are a citizen of the United Kingdom. When you're on the other side, you're not, and there is a distinction between those two things. That to you is a completely irrational idea. Yes. Well, I say with because Brexit, it's, not, yeah, it's just a we, bad look, thing. Look, here's the thing: with Brexit, it's the difference annoying. before and after is still probably going to be fairly, fairly moderate. And I think that it was a mistake, and that all things considered, a reasonable person would have said that it was a mistake. Uh, Again, it's one where I, I know some smart people. Not according to British yes, opinion. Yes, but nonetheless, yes, I'm trying to yes. argue whether you think well, it's well, a mistake yeah, or not. Yes. I'm trying to argue whether you think they were all completely irrational. Yes. Yes. There's no really good reason for them to feel that they want their society to stay roughly as it is because it has a huge amount of cultural, psychological, historical meaning to be England or to be Britain, to be a member of a shared community. This is not something that you seem to think really matters. Well, what I'd say is people are willing to pay maybe five or ten percent extra for that. Oh, come on. <laughs> I mean, seriously. I'm dead serious about that. Actually, speak louder than words. So, look, you if, are, there, you if there's that, an immigrant free neighborhood next to a neighborhood, 20% immigrants, and the rents in the immigrant free, free neighborhood are 5% higher, and a person says it keeps living in the, in the, in the neighborhood with 20% immigrants, I say, obviously, you don't really care about this. I mean, no. I, I will well, say this, this is the kind of thing that is about. They're talking about the nature of their society whether anything holds it together, whether any sto common story holds it together, whether any common past holds it together. If your country is suddenly 40% foreigners, what's left of your country? Uh, so, for, well, it's, what does the country mean to you? About 40% of your, the people there liked your country so much that they moved from there so they could be part of yours. That's a great story. 
course, Americans do. You know, big part of the American story is. Can you not even see why this would affect me? This is what I'm trying to get. I Mm -hmm. cannot. You cannot get through to you. It seems you have no understanding. Of, of, of human nature, which is that it's not homo economicus. Uh, that, that, yes, you so, can't so reduce it, everything to an economic uh, plus or minus. There are some things like culture, nation, history, language that bind people together that gives us meaning. And, and, and you want to say that it doesn't give people meaning, or if it does, they should get richer and lose meaning. And that's, that seems to me a very a didactic and rather arrogant way of talking about people's genuine political choices. So you know, like, here's what I'm saying, Andrew. I'm not saying that it doesn't matter. I'm saying that people greatly overstate how much it matters to them, and we can see this in their actions. Look, my reasoning is very similar to someone who says my religion is the most important thing in my life, and they don't go to church. And the polite thing, of course, is to shut your mouth and not point out that, 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 that they're lying or that what they're saying is false. But the true thing is, look, if you really cared about it, you would go to church every week. And it's not the most important thing in your life. And you're just saying that because it sounds good. And I say that's a, so a they lot. Don't, yeah, these people are just they, deceiving themselves. What they I'll have say, no they, idea they, what they I really say, I, What I say is they care very mildly. And as a matter of politics, they're the they power care, of the They cared enough that they, under, they underwent they, the yes, biggest, they, biggest they, shift. The biggest, biggest tectonic shift in Britain's relationship to the outside world in modern times. And you're telling me they don't really care that much about it? So what difference does it make if one person votes for or against? It doesn't change the outcome. It's participating in a poem. So yeah, I mean, I, look, this, I, this may puzzle you, but this is my general view about all politics. The fact that people vote for a big change doesn't show that they actually want it, doesn't show that they thought it through. So again, like think about Venezuela when people voted but for Chavez. Understand when they vote, why when they they would. I'm just yes. trying to get something yeah. from you that understands, yeah. even sympathizes with the genuineness of those feelings. Yeah. You know, you know, no like, feelings like what I'll say is, if the, someone the, says, "I'd like to look at the TV in England and hear English being spoken," I want people. Uh, I want to see people who've always looked like me just continue to be in a community around me. I want my country to roughly, if it changes, it's going to change, but it shouldn't change overnight. I mean. If you look at London, 40% of that city, 40% of London was not born in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. Now, when my brother says, it's not our capital anymore, is it? What do you think he's saying? Yeah, uh, well, I think he's speaking a poem. It's a poem. Uh, So, like, why do people vote for it? I think the Brexit poem was better. So, like, you know, the words that you say, those are great words, Andrew, and they move people. Are you honestly but, telling me? These words are like, like, it's like the Jedi mind trick. So, like, you say, like, this is super important. Yes, yes, it's super important. Move along. These are not the droids you're looking for. But look at actual behavior. There's a small number of people who really care about culture. These are people who live in communes, that kind of thing. People like ultra-Orthodox Jews who barely ever see anyone who's not part of that community. They really care. If you tell me, Brian, ultra-Orthodox Jews really care about the culture, I'll say I agree. They really care. Why? Because they've arranged their entire so lives around Ordinary this. Brits don't care barely. about the uh, yes. culture of their country. It's, it's, they don't care about the monarchy. They don't care about the history of tradition. They don't care about the history of, of literature. They don't care about the landscape. All they care about is how much money they're going to make yeah. and how, how much wealthy they might well, be like in the said, next they, they care, they care. They care a little bit. But I'll say, like when you say don't understand human nature, I'll say it is human nature to overstate how much you care about culture and understate how much you care about money. That's human nature. Because, and why? Because society, if you go around saying, I'm doing this to get a lot of money, people look down on you. If you're saying, I'm doing this to be part of my culture, people, people look up to you. 
And so, so, so it's very much in line with human nature. I think I've actually got a deeper understanding of human nature saying, look, we have to go and look past just what people say to what they do to understand what people actually really value. To what do you ascribe then the, the rise in mass immigration countries in the West of, of the hard right, the success of nationalist movements, populist movements, all of which have have rallied against the destruction of national cultures with a mass influx of people from completely different cultures who don't necessarily share or believe in the very basic principles of of western democracy for example yeah so i'm just going to go back to the same thing like the uh, the, the hard right poetry is very moving to 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 20% of the population Right, so like you know, when you, when you go and listen to, you think it's the, hard the, the, right the, 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 to say I like I love my country and I'd like it to stay roughly the way it's always been. That's hard right to you, right? And to say and we're going to do and, and, right, and, and then say I mean, I, it's one thing to say I'd like it, another thing to say and I'm going to do whatever it takes to make that happen. I don't care how, how I don't care how many people we have to deport. I don't care how many families have to split up. We're going to do it. That and you know that's one where like on the one hand it sounds pretty bad, but on the other hand, if you say it in the right way, then it does have a lot of appeal. Do you think the elect the elected officials of a country uh, owe more to the citizens of their own country than to everybody else on the planet? Hmm. So, I mean, I would say, you know, like, you know, first of all, like, like the question is, do they have a right to do it in the first place? So, um, the right to do what? You know, so for example, say, look, uh, you know, suppose the people in your country want you to go and take some oil from people in another country. You say, well. On the one hand, I owe more to my own people. On the other hand, we don't have a right to do this in the first place, so I'm not going to do that. I'd say that's the first question that you should always be asking: is do we have a right to do this in the first place? Uh, like once no, it's like, yeah, so, so like, like do you the, think yes. do you think that the president of the United States should be as concerned about a foreigner trying to enter the United States as he should be about a citizen of the United States? Is there any distinction between those two which you acknowledge? Hmm. I mean, I guess I'd say I think you should be more concerned about the person trying to enter because his uh, his basic human rights are on the line. Whereas for the American no, who doesn't want him around, so basically, yeah. and I, it's just yeah. interesting to get to the bottom of absolute rejection of the nation state yeah. and of democracy itself, yeah. right? Because democracy means has to mean that only citizens get to vote. Hmm. Well, in that case, I guess why, there's no why that, 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 foreign policy. Yeah. Why should American policy be dictated only by American citizens? Why shouldn't we hand out the vote for the president for the rest of the world as well? Hmm. I mean, as I'm sure you know, Andrew, there's no actual democracy that works the way you're describing. We have a Supreme well, that's what Court. You're we, yeah, well, so again, we have, well, like, you're I'm, say, I'm, I'm saying that every like actually, this is one where every country on earth already agrees with me to not have actual democracy. If you have a Supreme Court overruling democratically uh, vic victorious policies, is that democratic? You can either that's a ridiculous, that's a yes. ridiculous piece of no, sophistry. Yeah. That is, no, that is simply that is simply yeah. defined. I'm talking about the, the an elected official's duty to mm -hmm. serve the people who voted for him, the people who are within his territory. That's where his obligations fundamentally lie. And without that, we have no democracy at all, right? Do we? Yeah. So again, I would say first question, basic human rights, which again, I don't think is actually controversial. If someone says it's okay to attack a country because it's popular here, I'm doing what my citizens want. People would not consider that to be no, a good reason to do domestic it. policy. Yes. Um, fine. How, or fine. How, how about this? Like we're the, if we're the only country that produces food in the world and it's our decision to no longer export food anywhere else, is that okay? Right. Well, the voter, that, that's what the voters wanted. I'm going to do it. I, I owe it to them.
No, it, we're talking about the, the, for example, immigration policy. Yeah, I know. Should, well, should the president obey the dictates of his own citizenry over that of foreign populations? Is there any distinction between a citizen and a non-citizen that you will accept? Right. Uh, so, like on that, you know, definitely not. I do not. So, I, who yes, votes yes, in yes. an American election? Yeah. Who votes? Hmm? Who votes uh, in an American election? Um, so, American citizens vote in an American election. But uh, if it's open yes. borders and they're immediately citizens yes. the minute they come across um, the border, so, or within like five years or so, yes. then yeah. then then who is running? I mean, who who, yeah. who is the who who are the constituencies you're trying to appeal to? So that's a different question, actually. And so I mean, I, I, I have a, I, the yes. abolition yes. of the nation state is yeah. what you're so, arguing for. Uh, no, uh, so well, I why have would yes, you? Uh, well, that's an interesting question. Uh, so let, let me put it this way. When people get very angry at the Gulf monarchies for letting in a whole lot of people, in fact, the majority of many of the countries in the Gulf monarchy are not citizens. They have no say. They're not eligible for benefits. I'm always there to say their policy is better than ours. Why? Because they let a ton of people in. They let in most good immigrants. And it's much better to be allowed in to go and improve your life than to be able to have From the perspective of vote. the people coming in, what about the perspective yes. of the people already there? The people already there, they you know, so they you know like in the Gulf monarchies, they, they don't have, have no role. Yes, well, they don't. They, they, they don't have to worry about the uh, the, the the immigrants. But you, you, really, you really don't believe that the the, the 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 actual citizens of a country should have more say in the conduct of their own country than foreign than foreigners. Yes, possibly more say, but not on this. This is, like I said, this this is one wow. where where the the majority view is so, so wrong. As long as they agree to yeah. have no borders at all, yes. and and people can just come in wherever they want live wherever they want, uh, do whatever they want, then, then you'll grant them some sort of putative nationality and nationhood. Yeah. So again, uh, you know, what I'm saying is there's no requirement at all in open borders that you actually become a citizen when you come or that you can ever become a citizen. Say like, you know, what really counts is the right to live and work and the other stuff is a, you know, is a side issue. I don't think it's very important. Um, you don't so, think yes. that, that, that the right to vote is very important, you know, especially for new arrivals. You know, like if, if people are currently here, say we're worried that the immer new immigrants are going to vote for bad policies, then I'm very happy to say, all right, fine, let them come in and live and work, but don't let them vote. What's wrong with that? Right? You're and, okay with large yeah. numbers of people without basic civil rights in your own country? Yes. Yeah, so I would say you know, the right to live and work are the really basic civil rights. Right to vote is a much less important one, which again, we can see actions speak louder than words. Mostly, you know, it's caught me out in most elections. Actually, most people don't even bother to vote. How important can it really be to them? Well, we are, you really are. <laughs> abolition of the nation state, abolition yes. of democratic uh, again, accountability. Again, Total uh, open so, 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 come, on, come on, Andrew. I didn't say abolition of anything of these things. Saying that something is not very important compared to the right to live and work is not saying abolish. It's yes, saying yes, yes. that is that means the abolition of the nation state. Um, Absolutely has to mean that. Look, to say that people can come here. So, like, for example, so Kuwait's about 85% foreign born. The, the nation state of Kuwait doesn't exist. No, well, Kuwait is a, a, a well, weird, it's a basic, well, it's an oil company in the Middle East. Yeah. It's, 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 not, it's not a real, it's not yes. a real, it's not, it's not what we're talking about here. Um, well, these so, are basically oil companies bringing in large numbers of unskilled and basically slave laborers. Labor. Yes. So, I just, I just, I mean, seriously, Andrew, a slave, what kind of slave labor has people lining up to do it? And and who then go uh, leave when they want, and they come home with, and they come home are the richest man in their village. What kind of slave labor is that? Well, if, the, they, you know, if they, they go home, yes, but it is pretty 
pathetic low labor. It's certainly not something that someone with a with a real rights in a, in, a, in an actual serious uh, nation would would entertain. Look, you know, India is a democracy, and yet plenty of them would much rather go and work in Kuwait because the wages are higher, and not just by not just by five or ten percent, by factor of five hundred percent. I mean, to go and call workers in the in Gulf monarchy slaves, it's just silly. You know, look, like they are signing up. They're they are talking to relatives with cell phones, saying, "Come here. This is the best job I've ever had in my life. I'm going to try to help you get a job here." And then to go and call it slave labor—it's very odd. Well, they—they're <laughs> uh, they're definitely existing as indentured servants while they're there. They have no rights. They have no ability to 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 take decisions over their own lives. They are utterly the servants of whichever corporation and company is employing them. This is not compatible with any notions of Western democracy. But then, but then, much of your argument is well. Uh, let's see. Western democracies have H one Bs. That's the same thing, right? No, it's not the same thing. Uh, well, they, you, they you, have you, a, you can't you can, change, you can change your employer. You get employed, fired if you quit. You you can have a you can have a specialized six year thing yes uh, uh, yes. maximum six years uh, for specially skilled uh, right. people in certain you areas. You can't quit your, can't your job here. and you get deported if you quit. That's what H one Bs normally have. So it's, what we do is not so different. They're higher skilled workers, so they don't seem as pity, they don't seem as pitiable. But in terms of the way the way they're treated legally, it's very similar to how you'd be treated as an unskilled worker in Kuwait. Which which um so you don't believe that citizens in a democracy have a right to set their own immigration policies oh uh, no i do not okay again now 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 of course that and five dollars will get you a starbucks coffee i'm not so i, I mean i realize the, the way the way to getting better immigration policy is to win people over but yeah like if if i actually were on the supreme court for example and i could just strike down u.s immigration law i totally would but obviously, you, it couldn't because it's the Congress that passed it, and, the, and it's well, perfectly I mean, constitutional. Well, actually, There's no reason for the Supreme well, Court to do that. We uh, don't have. Well, a, well, I, I, I say, look, show me the part in the Constitution that says you can keep out immigrants. It says Congress can establish a naturalization law. There's nothing in there about preventing immigration. So I'd say, no, you can't do it. And if you want to do, if you want to do it, get an amendment. Well, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we're <laughs> establishing just quite, quite how out of, in outer space you are on, on these topics. But the idea that democratic countries should not be able to be accountable to their own citizens and that citizens cannot actually decide their own immigration policies is, is deeply anti-democratic. Who, who look, makes these decisions? What can I say? Like, would, look, right? look, almost, look, almost everyone is anti-democratic in this sense. Almost everyone thinks that there's some, not only foreign policy, but domestic policies that majorities shouldn't be allowed to vote for. Why not one more? Because it's a it's the basic description and definition of their own political entity. Without that definition, it doesn't exist. There's no one to invite people to. There, it is it is it is completely gone. This is not it's not some it it's without as 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 Trump famously put it without a border you don't have a country. Look, the U.S. had nearly open borders for until 1924. Was it a country back then? Well, it was. It wasn't quiet. It was emerging as one. I mean, it was still. So, uh, so the U.S. Well, the U.S. in 1910 is not a country. Because, well, it's because, it, because they have open borders. Certainly not like any almost any other country yeah. in the West at that point. There's yeah. still vast amounts to be discovered. It's a, it's a huge. In 1910, there is still there's yeah, still Alaska. There's a huge amount. There's a huge amount. But 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 anyway, <laughs> obviously. America was an exception to the rule because it was this place for people to come and and make their right. fortunes. So why were. can't and we have, why can't we be an exception again and still be a nation state? I don't see why not. Well, we can't because of the volume that we're talking about, the numbers that we could that could feasibly be considered, the ease of, of transportation, um, and and the do you have? I mean, again, 
there seems to be no interest in forging anything like a common nationality, a common culture, what makes you an American, what makes you different than a Mexican. Yeah, so again, what I, what, I, what I would say is, I mean, I think I'm a bigger fan of American culture than most people say they are fans. I Like I say, look, there are people all over the world who want to be part of our culture. They already like us a lot. And I think our, and I, I would like to let them be part of it. And I think that our culture is so great that in a free competition, we're going to win. It uh, doesn't mean that we won't learn a bunch of things from other countries in the process. We're going to go and get a, a much more varied cuisine, for example. Right. But still, I'd say, so like, way that I put it, well, well, they have a post called uh, Western culture, Western civilization is a hardy weed. I say, look, if you're someone who thinks that Western culture is going to collapse, if we go and let in another hundred million immigrants, you're not that big of a fan of it. You think that it's so fragile that you've got to be worrying about it collapsing. Look, I say, look, I think this is, it's so, it's so sturdy. It's so strong. Like the real story is that countries all over the world are trying to go and keep Western and American culture out because they know that they're likely to lose in their own countries. If they, if they allow free competition and immigration is basically a way of getting around those restrictions. So like how well, how well would the theocrats of Iran be doing if young people could just leave? Right? Like the young people there, I think would, well, like, maybe not a quite a majority, but a very large minority would just love to go and move to the West and just say goodbye to the theocracy of Iran forever. I want to, I, uh, and, and, the, and I want them the, in my the culture. People like that. Really the, people say, screw what, the, What's the your screw culture? Thing. What is your culture? How would uh, you describe it, your culture? Hmm. Let's see. I mean, what Tyler, is America, you know, so t- Tyler, Tyler Cowen actually says I'm a typical Los Angeles 1970s intellectual type. Uh, so that's his story. I don't know that that's really right. Do you think a um, country has to have a, a story about itself? Let's see. I mean, I think that like there's no there, there's no shortage of stories. Like like like, do you have I, to have I, I like, didn't you ask have stories? I'm asking you. Do you have to have like? Do you have to have one single story that what sixty percent of people believe to stay as a country? Probably not. Is there uh, any common culture yes. that you think yeah. makes a country a country? Right. Well, you know, so like what I would say, you know, like, you know culture is a notoriously uh, v- vague phrase. So you know, I say like you know, language. Langu- language is important. It's important to have a common language. Uh, again, Why? That's, yes. Why? Uh, yeah. Well, to be an economist, like low transactions costs, but also a you know, sociologist, if you don't speak a common language, you're not going to have much intermarriage. And that's a very standard measure of whether or not people are or like are, 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 you know, are, are willing to closely, closely relate to each other. Uh, so, you know, that well, when you have vast yeah. numbers of people speaking different languages, mm-hmm. huge communities coming in with different languages and cultures into a society, they don't actually have to coexist with other members who've already lived there. They don't ha- even have to speak English. Uh, um, they, don't, they don't have to, but the economic incentive to learn English is very large. And you know, there's so an idea that people do. Does it matter to you? Yeah. Uh, does I mean, like, as, as a matter of... Uh, yes, is yes, there yes, anything... You, yes. you, you say language, language yeah. matters, but then you say it doesn't really matter. Uh, so, again, Andrew, it's a continuum. There's zero, there's infinity, and there's everything in between. Uh, so, like, if you really wanted to push me, so what kinds of culture would really matter to you? Yeah, it would really bother me if my grandkids didn't speak English. Because I, because I wouldn't be able to talk to my grandkids. That's something I would actually... Well, you could learn their language. That would be up to you. <laughs> Based upon everything we know about linguistics, it would be damn hard for me to learn another language when I'm when I'm 65. 
Uh, so right. well, you're not yes. engaging seriously yes. in this conversation. Yeah, like, uh, I, why, why, is, why is that not serious? I've given you a serious <laughs> answer. That, you know, that, that, would, that would bother I, me. I, you, you, right? you, I, you know, like I, I would, so you know, to have my grandchildren speak my language, I would happily pay a couple hundred thousand dollars. Right. So that, that really matters to me to have people in my neighborhood all speak English. Yeah. That's like a hundred dollars a year. I couldn't care less. So a country, a, a, a national community could speak a dozen different languages. You, you couldn't care less. You know, like once it starts, they start, yeah, well, I mean, is it one, once, once it actually starts to inconvenience me, then it's a problem. Uh, I'd say, I say, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, like, like, I mean, I like, honestly, yes, you can't. I yes. mean, this is right. This, and, 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 and of course, now here's what I say: if it inconveniences a lot of people, then it's a problem for society. I don't see that the level of if, English speaking if, is an inconvenience to almost anyone you. in the United States right now. So I think that complaints about this are ridiculous right now. Again, the I'd point say of having yes. a common language is quite simple: is that if we want to talk to one another to make deliberations, I know you don't think we should make deliberations as a country. <laughs> that democracy is a fraud, and that we should we should uh, just allow foreigners to decide whatever we want to do. But let's say that we want to actually have conversations among citizens about policy projects, about something someone proposes. How do we even have a conversation for democracy if we don't speak the same language? Hmm. I mean, of course, you might just look at the native-born Americans right now. I mean, technically, they all spe they, they speak English, but they just talk past each other. I don't see that it's really a much of a conversation there either. All right, that's a serious answer anyway. You seem to have no understanding of culture whatsoever, or even or even patriotism, or nation nationhood, or anything it seems that the, 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 the caricature of a sort of homo economicus someone who can only see things in terms of all, you know rational goods for an economic actor is missing massive amounts of important uh, context for any discussion of immigration so for example let me ask this do you think that a common ethnicity is is necessary to have a common uh, nationality no I mean, we don't have Why do you think it's always been the case? Why do you think that's always been the case? Uh, it's, not, the it's not always been the case. This is actually mostly an invention of the last 200 years. In France, in 1800, most people there didn't even speak French. I, that's, a, that's a linguistic question. Yes, yes, yes. What I'm talking about, uh, which is that... So I think people in Breton would have been considered a different ethnicity at the time. I don't, I'm not totally sure about that. But you know, by, by the way, Andrew, I think that you're actually being unfair to other economists, maybe not to me. Uh, so my, uh, my views are actually not standard for economists. I am really very big on this action, speak louder than words. And a lot of what people say, especially about politics, is not sincere and is not really what people care about. Uh, this is actually a position I personally have been pushing. It's not very common among economists. Uh, but I do have a whole book about this, and I'm right. Right, it, it is totally standard for people to say something is super important to them, and then they have a chance to go and actually spend some of their own personal resources to make it happen, and they don't. And what do you do? What do you, like? What do you say to someone who says my religion is the most important thing to me, and then they don't bother going to church? What's your reaction to that? Well, they, they, I'm not saying anything is your most important thing, but I am saying that like what's your analysis of that human being? Someone says, "Oh, my religion is the number one thing in my life," and then they never go to church. Do you think that we like? Sure, you know, they like, may. Like they may. They may express it in a different way. I don't know. Right. I'm not going to say that. You're not going to say. Like, not, isn't, isn't the obvious thing? You don't really care. Me, and you're, yeah. Let me finish. Let All me right. say uh, that uh, I'm not going to decide whether that person is sincere or not in what, whatever they say. But what I will note is that, for example, across Europe, Western Europe, these modern democratic societies, that 
since they allowed mass immigration, different countries, different ethnicities, different languages, their politics have all moved quite rapidly to the right, and in many cases to the far right. And that if you believe, do you believe that human beings have an instinctive uh, affinity for people like themselves and a certain amount of distrust for people unlike themselves, that this is actually kind of a common human capacity? Some people call it racism, you can call it ethnocentrism, you can call it whatever it is, but that's, that's where a tribal species that developed kinship and and fellowship with people that kind of look like us and and we tend to respond poorly when challenged with people who don't look like us or sound like us or like us come into our space now that is a a very profound it goes back hundreds of thousands of years in terms of humans and what you're arguing for is a massive experiment in the mixing of extraordinarily different cultures and languages and indeed ethnicities and racial subpopulation groups and all the rest of it as if nothing bad could come from that as if we could have no racial conflict we would have no social conflict we wouldn't have the emergence of strongman figures saying we will control the borders and keep these people out now whether you agree with that person or not do you not think that the evidence suggests that dramatically transforming the demographics of the society and the language of it overnight uh, or not even overnight, over quite a period of time, will empower uh, far right and populist and racist and 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 indeed white supremacist thinking in the United States. We've certainly seen that that has been an outcrop, an outgrowth of the the allowance of mass illegal immigration to the United States over the last twenty years. That's partly why we have Trump. Do you have any solution to that? Don't you think it would make it worse? Hmm. So what I would say is, I think the effect is small, and we should totally live with it. It's far better to have far-right parties and lots of immigration than no far-right parties and very little immigration. In fact, I say the main problem with far-right parties is they don't want immigration. So if we say we're going we're gonna to stop immigration to prevent the far-right parties, I'd say, well, the whole problem with them is they don't want immigrants. So if we give them what they want and they go away, then what have we won? Just well, because more and more people will flock to them, the more they see their own country being treated as a sort of experiment okay. for, for yeah, international, like, so a grand international experiment. Okay, but again, so like other than their policies on immigration, I don't see what's so bad about them. Uh, you don't think that, that some of the really divisive and nasty racist yeah, messages so, yeah, that so go about that? Like if, if Trump were pro-immigration, pro I, I would have had barely any problem with him. Say what again? If, if Trump were pro-immigration, I would have had barely any problem with him. I would have said he has very poor manners, but he's doing this policy that is really good, and, and the other stuff is not that big of a deal. I'm talking about all the, the dislocation, the social conflict the racial conflict the the emergence you're, you're kind of taking this tribal creature humans and you're putting them in an extreme stress test situation in which they have to get along with every other kind of person on the planet within their own space in a very short period of time it strikes me that this is not good for social stability or social cohesion of a country for a country to retain its sense of itself and for people to retain a very strong sense of their identity with that country. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, I totally see what you're saying. It's just the question of how big the effect really is. So mm -hmm. I would say that if what you're saying, well, like if the magnitudes that you're talking about were true, then when we went around London, New York City, it should just be disastrous. And it's not. It's fine. Right? Now you can say, oh, so when you walk around in a place where people are speaking 40 or 50 different languages, or you hear that many, uh, you're like, I know there's some people who are a bit uncomfortable, maybe even a little queasy, like my dad would be uncomfortable. Right? But 
on the, I'm about to say like, how big of a deal is this? Is this really, is this really actually anywhere close to causing a breakdown in society or even a 10% breakdown? You know, I have spent a lot of time in Europe and going to places where people say that immigration has caused this big breakdown. And I just look around and say, I just don't know what you're talking about. I see that you know, like the, there's some moderate diversity here, which might bother some people. And I can see there could be some, you know, some moderate increases in some problems, but as to why you do anything drastic to go and stop that, that is mysterious to me. Wow. Um, but, but think about your dad for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, I know. I think, well. about, I think about my brother for a minute, you know, who, who he's not a, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a great guy. Um, he might be listening to this, um, but <laughs> he just, I don't think it's a good thing for someone from England to feel alienated from their own capital, to feel that they don't really have a say in how their country is run, to feel that, that their country can become basically a, 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 a place for anyone in the world to just show up in. And the, the person who's just shown up has just as much rights and just as much claim as the person who's lived there his whole life, been born there, and whose family goes back centuries and centuries. Do you not see that human need for a place of belonging and identity that actually gives people people's lives meaning? Well, I, I totally do. And let me give you a example that I think you're going to say isn't serious, but I'm totally serious, actually. So my dad, so my dad, has, you know, he turned 83 yesterday. Now, mm-hmm. how much has, the, has America changed since he was young? It's, a, it, it's an overwhelming change. And you know how my dad feels about it? You think he feels great about modern America? No, he feels very alienated from it. Right now. Uh, and and so some of it is immigration, but mostly it's just what native-born descendants of his generation became. And he like, and he's not happy with what how things turned out. And then there's a question of like you know well shouldn't he have a right to go and have things stay basically the same way that they were when he was growing up in the fifties? And my answer is totally not because your right to your culture is the right to take away the freedom of other people to change. So I'm raised Catholic and I don't want to be Catholic. And then either you can say that you have a right to preserve a Catholic culture, at least within your family, or you can say, no, you've got no right to do that. Your son's got freedom of religion. He can be an apostate if he wants, and you just have to suck that up. Right. And that, that is honestly my reaction to people like your brother. Although you know, like, I always try to be nice to people and say, well, but like the honest answer, once you get through the politeness is, look, this is other people do it living their way and you've got to live your way and they're going to live their way. And uh, hopefully, and you like, you know, hopefully you'll see some good in it and learn to appreciate but he, it. But, if not, but he will say, it's too bad. he will say, he will say, but this is my place. This is where, yeah. where I've always lived. This is where these people just arrived. My family goes back forever or, or these people don't speak English or I, I, uh, uh, and, and I, I, I feel a for a, a stranger in my own land. Now, yeah, I mean, I think I think Let, my mom could I, say we've been Catholics for centuries, and now you're not. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. Now well, I'm not. So I'm I'm I'm, I'm turning I, my back on centuries. It's like this is my family. Shouldn't I get to decide what happens to my family? It's like, well, your family contains people other than you. It contains me, and I want something different. Right, and of course, the idea that society should be frozen in aspic. Uh, forever is obviously ludicrous, and no. Yeah, but, but, even, but this is not. This is not just frozen. This is radical change. Like the the world that my dad feels that he's in, mostly from watching Fox News. So I think that's giving giving him a bit of a biased sample. But still, he turns on the TV and he's just horrified by what America is right now. And so again, it's not just like freezing it. It's like like you. Know, I think you said, well, couldn't it just have slowed down? Couldn't it yes. change, have changed at half this pace so that yes. the world I'm seeing at 80 is the world I was seeing at 55, and then I can die before it becomes this? 
Is there <laughs> any? Let me just try. Is there any? Would you give any credence to that sense of? Can we just? We know that change is inevitable. We know that it's good. For example, most Americans love immigrants and want immigration. Understand, and this is this is a unique. This country is unique in that respect. I mean, in terms of its creation by immigration and its adherence to immigration as a culture. But would say. Don't you think we rather overdid it? Like the 1965 Act really made this sort of extraordinary attempt to to diversify America as a as a kind of state policy to make it less white, less Western, less Northern European. Yeah, um, that was was not really the goal of legislation. It was accidental, but <laughs> well, who knows? Who knows uh, what it there, was? They there, definitely there, said it wasn't going to yeah. do that at the time. Yeah, great book on this. I mean, like like the actual statements is basically we want to keep the ethnic balance yes. without seeming racist. So let's do family unif- family reunification. And since almost everyone here is white, family reunification will keep it white. And they didn't realize that white people don't have many relatives that want to come here, and non-whites have a lot of relatives want to come here. So they screwed up from their from their own approach. But that no, but well, they, it wasn't they, the goal. No, but they no, no, no. It was the goal to establish the uh, immigration from Africa and from Asia specifically to diversify. This is an era also of civil rights. There was a sense that we needed to be open to the whole world uh, in ways that hadn't been before. And the 1924 Act was obviously quite restrictive. Um, yes. But so, you could... The so people again, I'd say that that's just not what the actual authors of the 65 Act said they wanted to do. Like They, they definitely wanted to get rid of the stink of racism. But they also wanted to keep Americans, America's demographics very similar. And that's why they hit on this family reunification as a non-racist way to maintain demographic similarity. Yes, and, that's, and, then that's they, and then, they, then they just didn't understand chain migration. Right. <laughs> so uh, I think that, that's, what, that's what really happened. So I, I, I urge people, if yeah. they look it up on Google, to go read yeah. Ted Kennedy's speech in the Senate uh, in defense of the 1965 Act, mm-hmm. where he specifically says this basically a subtext this will only mean more irish people <laughs> essentially said. uh ah, no, okay. no, i totally miss where you're going with that andrew so. <laughs> <laughs> well he was trying to say don't worry it's it's not going to yeah. change the ethnic balance in america but mm-hmm. it did my my argument would be a, a, a squishier one which is to say it is prudent uh and i think maybe we'll, we can wrap this up here that it's prudent to have immigration to occur at a rate in which people can genuinely be integrated and assimilated into a society, that in which the society isn't more changed than the people who change it. In other words, that the society influences newcomers rather than newcomers overwhelming the possibility of the old, and that you do this at such a pace that you keep you keep social cohesion, you do not prompt backlashes from too massive a change, and you accept that the rights of citizens is greater than the rights of foreigners in coming into a country. Um, and if you do that, you can have a relatively successful, as I think America has had, immigration policy. But when it goes off the rails, when it becomes mass immigration, when it becomes mass immigration from one country primarily, or from one particular culture, um, then and you do it too quickly, and the general population feels overwhelmed, then I think you're, 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 you're getting into, into tough, tougher areas. And that's, that's the sort of squishy position I would, would hold. 
right? And what I'll say is we're just nowhere near this kind of problem. It's really like the complaints about immigration are basically in the media. They're on TV. It's scary stories. In terms of daily life, the problems that immigrants are causing are minuscule, and then, which is why people are not eager to go and move away from places with immigrants because actually they're fine neighbors, fine people, and we could have way more without having any serious problems. But you know, definitely in the United States, and I think Europe could go a lot further too. Well, it has been huge fun. <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been great fun, Andrew. Yes. Uh, you you are the funnest immigration skeptic I know, actually. Yeah. Really? Well, my, my dad is almost the angriest I know, so he would never laugh about this stuff. I love uh, I love yeah. America and I love its immigration and I am a beneficiary of it. It took me a, it took me a t- terribly long time to get here, a bunch of incredibly difficult hurdles, but I I did finally get here. So it's not that I don't thrill to the possibility of immigration. I take your excitement at face value and share it to some extent. I just think the lessons we've learned is that too fast, too much, too soon is, 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 is first of all, not good for anybody, people here already and people coming in who need to be able to have a chance at real assimilation and integration as opposed to being in a vast mass of foreigners coming into a country that really can't integrate as well as they might. And secondly, I think you just do need to have a sense of continuity in your country, in its history, in its culture, in its in its in its uh, the story we tell ourselves about it. This is very much a part of human nature, as deep as any desire to get wealthy. And I know you think it's not that essentially show me the money or get lost. And I just I just think the human mind is 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 more complicated than that. Um, I mean, I think it's so complicated that people often say things that they don't really mean, and we can look at their actions and see what they actually care about. But I got one last question for you, Andrew. Okay, yeah. So, so if you had stayed in your country of birth and not been able yeah. to immigrate, how different would your accomplishments in life be? What would you have it's, been able to do with your life? You have, you have, well, I'm just, I'm just curious. What do you think? Don't tell me what you know. Tell me what you think. <laughs> I... I think I probably would have been done just as well in a way in a, in a, in a, in a smaller place. Um, I particularly thrive in this country. Uh, I'm just more of a, uh, I don't know. I'm you, just could have had one, one of the, you might have had 1% of the audience. Do you think that that's plausible? Uh, probably not 1%, but, 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 yeah. but probably less. And, uh, and I might've been able to do more, but, um, but no, I, and also, of course, we're talking about the United Kingdom, which has is a developed Western mm-hmm. democracy with yeah. all sorts of opportunities. And I, I was lucky enough to to be able to rise up through that system uh, pretty easily. But um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It just happens this way. But I, I certainly love this place. I love its energy and I love its diversity. I'm just, I just think you can take some good things too far. And I think we have a little bit, and we have slightly underestimated the need to calm things down and to chill it out specifically because i fear the backlash could be a lot worse than it already has been well i'm still i'm really glad you came andrew <laughs> <laughs> you're very sweet yeah. not everybody feels yes. that way and and, and yeah. the idea that the other thing i would say is that you know they say immigrants can't be anti-immigration well i'm not anti-immigration that's 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 clear Every, i i don't believe that but i I do think that people misunderstand. Many immigrants really do think that we should have a, a, a slower pace of immigration. Part of that is self-interest, obviously, but part of it is also a sense that the country we came to, we don't want to lose. And it's, 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 it's more fragile. I mean, I guess this is where we also disagree. There's a fragility to our democratic society that is easily taken for granted, that I fe- fear that 
the extreme racial conflict or big demographic shifts or open borders would 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 generate the kind of unrest that would lead to a weakening of the very situation that you think people want to come to. And that's also my concern. But so much fun to have the complete open borders position presented this way and, and to talk about some first principles and, and that I'm, I'm, in, I'm incredibly grateful. Thanks so much for, for joining us on the Dishcast. Thanks very much. And it is Open Borders, the Science and Ethics of Immigration, and you can get it on Amazon for thirteen thirty nine. And we'll make sure we have that link in the in in the post too. It's but uh, we have to warn people. It is it is it is a comic book, uh, nonfiction graphic, <laughs> well, uh, non, non 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 graphic novel like Alan Mo- Alan Moore. Graphic novel. What you know, Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, your two of your greatest the greatest living <laughs> Britons. Right? Let us not belittle their genre that they pioneered. Uh, not at all, no, no, and and but so, but just to give our readers, our listeners, um, heads up about what they might get if they if they buy that book. But um, we'll put it up there. And thanks for coming on. And uh, maybe we'll 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 try more of these. Uh, just take it from left field and talk about someone, talk to someone whose views are completely different than my own. This is very well humoured, really fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. See you later. And we'll see you all. We'll see you all next week. We're going to talk about testosterone. That's coming up. Um. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening.